Guys, thank you so much. Thank you for your kindness. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for releasing me to uh, go off for three months and do other things. Um, in a little over a week, I will be uh, by the Sea of Galilee in Israel, walking there, reading the scriptures, enjoying Jesus. There's worse places to pray, aren't there? So um, I'm really, really looking forward to that. And I just thank you so much for releasing me. Um, as one friend said to me this week, he said, Phil, he said, I'm, I'm both really pleased for you, but I also really hate you right now. And I was like, God bless you. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much. I really, really uh, mean that. I really, really appreciate that. It's a real privilege to get to do uh, that. And also just to say the book, I mean, it's, I was just thinking about uh, the book. This really is less of a book and more of a toolkit. And uh, I remember when I, um, I inherited my grandfather's toolkit, and I've still got many, many of my tools are my grandfather's tools, and I've labored and toiled through the years to learn how to use them, and I'm gradually getting the hang of it. But he passed on something to me that I could use. I can use it in my home, in my family. I can use it with my children. And really, this book was very much written as a toolkit. It's like a toolbox for disciple makers. And so I would really encourage you to get hold of this, to go through it with your children if you have them, to use this as a resource when you're helping others to grow in Jesus. This book is actually not so much just for you, it's for other people that you're going to pass these things on to. It's a toolkit. And just like my grandfather passed his tools on, this is to encourage us to pass disciple-making tools on to one another. And uh, any money that we make from this book will not come to me. It will all go back into the life and work of this church. And so we want to make sure that this book... The next two weeks is available for us, five pounds. You won't get it anywhere else at that price after this two weeks. So go and grab hold of those. Get some for your family if you want to, and just make the use of that uh, as you can. Yeah, I'm going to give this one away right now. Uh, who, is, um, who is desperate to disciple somebody else? Right, you at the back. Come forward. Let's give this lady a round of applause. <clears throat> Brilliant. All right, well, why don't you just grab a shoulder of someone you're next, sitting next to, give it a little squeeze just to let them know that you love them. And uh, we're just going to pray. <laughs> Jesus, we love you so much. And Father, thank you that we get to celebrate the nations today. Thank you for who you've made us. Thank you that we are your people called by your name. Thank you that our unity is no longer about race or culture. Our unity is about Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is our King. And I thank you wherever we're from today, Jesus, you are our Lord, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Lord, our great Saviour. And I thank you that you have made one new family from many, many different nations. Thank you that we get to call each other brother, sister in the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Come and speak to us this morning. We pray from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just got to tell you one real quick story before we turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And a couple of weeks ago, a friend told me a story of a friend of his who'd come to Christ in Somalia. Uh, he was a Somalian. And uh, he was telling my friend about how he first came to become a disciple of Jesus. And uh, he was one day just minding his own business, working in his uncle's shop in Somalia. And he wasn't a Christian believer at all. And no one else was in the shop. But suddenly, he smelt this fragrant perfume smell in the shop. And he kind of sniffed his armpits. He thought, this isn't me. It's not my eau de cologne. Uh, where's this coming from? 
And then the next moment, through the wall, a golden cloud entered the room where he was in the shop. And that cloud formed into the shape of a man. The man said to him, my name is Jesus. Will you worship your creator? And, uh, and, and the man said, no, I won't. And, and so this kind of guy in the shop, uh, he's kind of standing there looking at Jesus. And Jesus says to him, to prove that I am real, tomorrow you're going to lose your job. And then disappeared. And the man thought to himself, there is no way that I'm going to lose my job. This is my family business. This is my uncle's shop. You know, there is no way that I'm going to lose my job tomorrow. That's just not going to happen. Well, sure enough, the next day, his uncle walks into the shop, looks at his nephew and says to him, there is something different about your spirit than when I last saw you. You're sacked. Get out of here. So, so the, the man kind of went home with his tail between his legs thinking, what's going on? I don't understand this. Got back to his house, and as he's sitting in his house, the house begins to fill up with the smell of fragrant perfume. And then a golden cloud comes to the wall of his house, turns into the shape of a man and says, my name is Jesus. Will you worship your creator? And he says, no. <laughs> and so Jesus says to him, This time tomorrow, when you visit your friend in hospital, your friend will get healed the moment that you set foot in the hospital room and then disappears. And so the next day, the man is scheduled to visit his friend in hospital. This this friend has been long-term sick. He hasn't sat up or spoken in weeks. And as his friend walks into the hospital room, this friend on his hospital bed sits bolt upright with his eyes open and he starts to get as if to walk out of his hospital bed. And, and his friend says to him, hang on a sec. Do you want me to get you a, a wheelchair, a walking stick? Like, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to the toilet by myself. I know that I'm healed. And he says, well, how do you know? And he says, well, last night in the middle of the night in my hospital room, the room suddenly filled up with the smell of fragrant perfume. And then a golden cloud came through the door, turned into the shape of a man, and it was Jesus. And he says, this time tomorrow, when your friend visits you, you will be healed from your sickbed. And he says, I know that I'm healed. And he was. And still the man didn't give his life to Christ. And so it it took a number of other encounters like that where eventually he gave up and he's like, I will worship my creator. I will worship Jesus. And that man now runs a massive radio broadcast in Somalia preaching the gospel across that nation. I tell you what, Jesus can reach you anywhere. Any which way he thinks is best, he can find you. He can hunt you down. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Should we just thank Jesus for those kind of stories? Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing all over the world. Thank you, Lord. Well, I want to ask us this question this morning as we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and it's this. How do disciples of Jesus change to become more like him? Okay, so that's the question this morning. How do we change to become more like Jesus? What does that look like? What do we do? How does that process happen in our lives? And I think it's important to start with this clarification, that transformation biblically is an event It's a destination, and it's also a process. It involves your past, your present, and your future, all simultaneously at the same time. And, you know, as Christians, Jesus' call to us is to love him with all of our minds, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And Jesus, when he comes to save us, he's actually interested in saving all of us. 
He's interested in your mind. He's interested in your soul. And he's interested in transforming your body. All those make up part of what Jesus bought and won through the cross and the resurrection. So firstly, transformation of the soul is an event. It's a moment in time. That moment that you put your faith in Jesus, you became a brand new creature. In an instant, in a moment, in the flick of eye, in in a heartbeat. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Past tense. The old has gone and the new is here. I was just rereading this week the second verse of To God Be the Glory. And this is what it says. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That's the gospel. That the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, you are just pardoned forever and ever and ever. And it had nothing to do with your good works. It had everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross. Do you understand that your works did not get you into the kingdom? Neither can your works get you out of the kingdom now that you're in it. Do you understand that being a Christian is not performance-based approval? It's not performance-based salvation. Jesus just saved you while you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You've now been made alive with Christ as a gift. That means that you cannot sin your way out of God's family. Do you understand that? That is the scandal of the gospel. Because you might say to me, well, well, does, does that mean as a Christian I can go outside and start sinning? Yes, it does mean that. Because that is the scandal of grace. That just as a gift, God says, you are forgiven because you believed in my son and he paid the price for your sin. You are off the hook forever. See, if you go to Brighton and you, you get a bit of Brighton rock, you cut that thing any which way down a piece of Brighton rock and it will still read exactly the same thing in the middle, Brighton rock. And if I was to cut you down the middle, even in your worst, darkest days as a Christian, it would still read, son, daughter, forgiven, free, ransomed of the Lord. That moment that you believed, a pardon you received. That's the gospel. It can never be reversed. Once a son, once a daughter, always a son and always a daughter. Hallelujah. It's all on Jesus. Paul says that this gospel is not by works so that no one can boast. Because what would happen is if your ability to produce good works kept you in the kingdom, it would be a competition all the time. Who's doing the best? Where am I in the pecking order? Well, actually, in Jesus, all that is eradicated. We are one in Christ Jesus. It's an event. It's happened. That's who you now are. But transformation for the body is actually a destination. Do you know that your ultimate destination is a moment where your body gets clothed with the imperishable just as your soul is already imperishable. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's talking about the last day when Jesus returns. He says, when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Halle, jolly, (laughs) luya. This 
This mortal body that you now live in, with all of its proclivity to rust and decay and ache and sneeze during the hay fever season, anybody living in that right now? Oh my gosh, ridiculous. You know, those, those, those headaches, those, those illnesses, those long-term things that you live with, those moments where perhaps you get prayed for and you don't instantly get healed. Listen, your ultimate destination is to receive a resurrection body the same as Jesus' resurrection body. Just as he was raised imperishable, you will be raised imperishable with Jesus. Healing is the children's bread, either partially in this life, but fully in the next life. That is your inheritance. Wow. What an in- Just nudge someone next to you, say, you look like you could do with a resurrection body. <laughs> I'm joking, don't really say that. <laughs> But then next, we know this. Transformation of the mind is a process. It's not an event. It's not a destination. It's a process. It's something that is ongoing. Do you understand that God's strategy to change your behavior is not to get you to live by the rules, but to get you to think differently? Let's try that over this side. God's strategy for changing your behavior is not to give you an ABC rule list, but it's to help you change the way you now think. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What has happened in your soul was so utterly breathtaking and out of this world, it is going to take your brain a whole lifetime and then some to catch up with what your heart got in an instant. That's called sanctification. It's called the process of you catching up with the reality of what God has done on the inside. Be transformed. Learn to think differently. And of course, you know, it's difficult sometimes to adjust to a new reality. And I think transformation of the Christian mind is a little bit like jet lag. Any of you suffered from jet lag ever before? It's just hideous. It really is a hideous thing. I, I remember the first time that I went to New Zealand and Australia. And you just, you arrive there and it's one o'clock in the afternoon. But all you want to do is go to bed. You want to sleep. And then when it's one at night there, you just want to get up. You definitely want to pee all night long. You want to you eat breakfast when you shouldn't be eating breakfast. Your head feels upside down and inside out. And I remember the first time I went, I forgot to change my watch. And so what I did for the first two days is I kept looking at my English watch thinking, oh my goodness, I should be in bed right now. I just feel like death warmed up. But here's the reality. In New Zealand, it really is one in the afternoon. That's not fake. That's real. Something in me needs to shift to the new reality that I'm now living in. In other words, my mind needs to catch up and my body will certainly follow. And that's what it's like so often for us as Christians is that we are often suffering from what I would call spiritual jet lag. We are catching up with what God has really done on the inside. And sometimes we say, well, I don't feel very forgiven. Your feelings have very little to do with it. You are forgiven. You are now in a new time zone called in Christ, forgiven, free, ransomed, transformed, new creation. That's your new time zone. Set your watch and your mind and your body will follow. It's your new reality in Christ. But it's a process that's ongoing. You know, it's like Shrek the Ogre. It's like onions. It's layers, layers of thinking. 
the power of a transformed mind. And so much of the New Testament is teaching about what it now looks like to think as a disciple of Jesus. How do we learn to think like God? Because as we know, even from our own lives and from history, whatever the mind dwells on, the body acts upon. All behavior is fueled by belief. You might want to ask yourself this question, why do I do the things that I do, both positive and negative? The reason that you do those things is because of what you believe. It's what's going on in here. There's a very famous golfer called Arnold Palmer, and uh, he won loads of trophies in his lifetime. He's still fifth on the all-time player list. He won 95 professional titles. And yet in his office, he only had one cup, and it was the very first cup, the trophy that he won in 1955. And uh, this is him receiving it here. And um, underneath that plaque, underneath that trophy, he had this written. He said, if you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you'd like to win but think you can't, it's almost certain you won't. But sooner or later, the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. I love that. The man who wins is the man who thinks he can. He's saying that actually winning starts in here with a transformation of thinking. And for the Christian, this is so much more than the power of positive thinking. There's a whole series of books called The Power of Positive Thinking. And, you know, they have some merit. But actually, biblically, what we're doing when we're training our minds is we are training to think like God. We're training to think like God bringing ourselves into line with him. Because here's the thing, God does not conform to us, we conform to him. Be very careful that you haven't got a God that's made in your own image. If your God never contradicts the way that you think, you might have created a God in your own image. If your God never disagrees with you, be careful that you haven't created the wrong God in your mind. Your goal is to conform to him, not the other way around. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes, that was just a freebie. History is shaped by ideas. Individuals are shaped by ideas. I think we can look back, for example, on, you know, Nazi Germany, the Nazi rule where six million Jews were exterminated. And now we look back in horror and we think, how could something like that happen? Well, it could happen because of an idea, because of a thought. A thought that led to belief, a belief that led to behavior. And that's how history gets shaped around us. And that is why if you are a Christian, we should not abdicate our involvement in politics, in philosophy, in academia, in universities, in literature, in media, in the arts. Why? Because the ideas that are being formulated in those places right now will be the behaviors of 20, 30 years' time. We cannot just treat the symptoms We've got to go to the root. We've got to go to the cause. We've got to change things at the very thought level. And Paul, when he begins to write about who we now are in Ephesians chapter 1, he just has some stunning things to say about our new identity. And if we were to get hold of the truth of what God says about us, we would be the mightiest force for change in this whole world. And Paul begins to unpack this in Ephesians chapter 1. And... um, To be honest, Ephesians 1 and 2 should be read together as a whole, and it's almost a criminal offense just to pick out one verse. So I'm really sorry that I'm doing that right now. But go home and read the whole of Ephesians. Seriously, it will do you good. So here's what Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here is a thought that should change everything. You have received every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That's not true of the person just sitting next to you. It's true for the person sitting in your seat. It's true for you. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul begins to unpack what this actually means for us. And one of our discipleship tools is this tool called Shift Your Thinking, knowing who you are in Christ. And there's six identity statements. There's actually many more in Ephesians 1 and 2, but we've picked out six that handily spell the acronym Christ. So here we go. C. Now, just a heads up, I'm going to give you a test on these at the end, so listen carefully. So C, chosen in Christ. Paul says this, Ephesians 1.3, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Part one of who you now are, you have been handpicked by God. You didn't look excited about that at all. You've been handpicked by God. He, he handpicked you. In fact, Ephesians 1, 4 says, He predestined that you would be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ. Long before the world was even formed, he saw your life and he said, I'll have you. I'll have you. I'll have you. You're in my family. I want you. I want you. You were on God's wanted list a long, 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 long time ago. You have been handpicked by God. You know, and this massively deals a death blow to our old identity of thinking like rejected people. So often we can still be living in that old time zone of, oh, I just, I'm rejected and someone else rejected me again. That's just who I am. I'm not wanted. People don't want to be around me. Listen, that is not true of you anymore. People may still reject you in this life, but God will never forsake you. <laughs> he will never forsake you because he chose you in the first place. You're handpicked by God. And, you know, I, I remember this coming home vividly to me when we adopted my brother. I was 14 years old and I was an only child up to that point. And uh, back in those days, I don't know if it works quite the same way now, but back then what used to happen is that you used to get a catalogue of children that needed adoptive families. And you'd literally be like browsing through a catalogue of kind of photos of children who needed a home and there'd be a little bit of information about each of them. And I remember during this process beginning to pray and ask God for his blessing in this process. And I clearly one day felt him say, you're going to adopt a boy called Adam. And I remember writing it down in my journal as a 14-year-old. And I, I didn't tell my parents. I just kept it to myself, wrote it in my journal for that day. And then it was a, a, a little while later that my parents came to me and they showed me the photo of a young lad with a shock of blonde hair. And they said, we're going to go and visit this boy. He lives in Sussex and we think he might be the one. And they, then they said to me, and his name is Adam. And I instantly I said to them, I think he is the one. And I, I remember we drove up to his house and uh, he was standing waiting for us on his driveway. He had a football under his arm. He had a Man United top on, a shock of blonde hair and an expectant look on his face. And uh, when Adam came to us, he had seven different surnames because he'd been with seven different foster families. 
And by the age of six and seven, he was looking after his four younger siblings, getting them ready for school every day, cooking them breakfast, often turning up to school in their pajamas. But that moment, the revelation of you have been handpicked by our family. And actually, that is something that even natural born children cannot say. But adoptive children get to say, I was handpicked. I was chosen. And scripture says this, you were chosen by God. He handpicked you to be in his family long before you had any thoughts of him. He chose you. You are not an afterthought to God. He picked you out. Wow. This is who you now are. And it deals with rejection. H is for handiwork. Paul says this, Ephesians 2.10, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that word handiwork literally means piece of art, masterpiece. It's as if God were a, a painter, an artist, and the canvas that he chose to paint on was your life. You are his masterpiece, his work of art. This is the way you don't sound convinced, so I'm just going to prove it to you. Psalm 139, this is what it says about you. It says of God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Just take a moment. Just thank God that he made you so wonderfully complex. (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) He carries on. He says, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You are fashioned by God. You are not ugly. You are not unwanted. You are not an outsider. You are God's masterpiece. And when he looks on you, he says, you are mine. You are my special treasure. And how often we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm, I, I, I'm too this, I'm too that, I'm too fat, I'm too thin, I'm too tall, my nose is too big, my eyes are too close together, I'm too this, that, that, that. You could fill in the blanks. All of us in this room have had those thoughts. But here is the truth from Scripture about who you are in Christ. You are his handiwork. Therefore, stop cursing what God has now called blessed. You're his. You're his. There's that old story about Balaam in the Old Testament. And he is sent to go and curse the people of God. And it's that crazy story where the donkey starts to prophesy. It's a cool story. If you haven't read it, go and read it. And Balaam, when he eventually gets to see the people of God, he looks out upon the God's people. He tries to get a curse word out of his mouth, but he can't. And this is what he says. He says, how can I curse what God has called blessed? You're his handiwork. Look in the mirror every day and say to yourself, I'm his masterpiece. With all the imperfections that you're aware of, God looks at you and says, my treasure, my son, my daughter, I love you. 
I love you. I fashioned you. R is for redeemed. We've been redeemed in Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I'm telling you, Ephesians is my favorite book in the Bible. It's just dawning on me right now. The riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Redeemed literally means he makes every part new. He redeems everything. He redeems even the junky stuff. God says he works all things together for the good of those who love him. You are a redeemed, ransomed person. You are no longer a sinner trying hard to be good. You are a saint who occasionally sins. That difference is massive in your thinking. You are no longer a sinner trying hard to be good. You are a saint who occasionally sins. I'm telling you, that is a massive identity truth, if you will get it. Because again, belief fuels behavior. If you subconsciously think, well, I'm still a sinner, really. I better try hard to please God. Your life will be one of drivenness and performance and competition and ultimately heartbreak. But the good news is you've been redeemed by Jesus. All that is true of him is now true of you. Let me just say that again. All that is true of him is now true of you. You have been placed in Christ, in him. You know, I'll never forget um, one particular bath time with my kids. And uh, my son was six at the time. And we were just talking about Jesus and the gospel. And I just asked him this question. I said, Sam, do you think that there are some good people in the world and some bad people? Are some people born good and some people are born bad? And he looked at me, he's like, yes, daddy. Some people are good and some people are bad. I said, well, actually what the Bible says is that every single one of us is born bad. We're born sinners. God loves us, but we are actually born with a proclivity and a default to sin, to displease God. And that's why you never have to teach someone how to do something wrong. They do it because it's their nature. And we are all born like that. We are born sinners, separate from God. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, We were by nature objects of God's wrath. We were dead in transgressions and sins. That's what it says. And we're chatting about this. And then there's this pregnant pause where Sam said to me, So does that mean that I'm bad? (laughs) Now as a parent, what you say at that point is absolutely critical. If you say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't apply to you. You're not a sinner. What are you doing? You're setting your child up for a life of entitlement where they believe that they deserve grace. But unless you understand, I was born separate from God and nothing but Jesus' death and resurrection can bring me to life. If you don't believe that you didn't deserve saving, you will never be able to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Grace will never be amazing to you if you think you're entitled to it. We've got to start from this place. I am born in sin and I need rescuing. That's a great place to start, but it's a lousy place to finish. And this is what it now says for those that are in Christ. You have been redeemed. God has lavished his grace upon you. You are free, off the hook, in the family, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because of Jesus. 
you have been redeemed. And again, you might say to me, well, it doesn't feel like I'm redeemed. Spiritual jet lag. Spiritual jet lag. Change your clock. Change your thinking. And your behavior will follow. I is for inheritance. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. In Jesus, you have an eternal inheritance. You understand that this life is not all there is. There is an eternity waiting for you and a reward, an inheritance, something eternal that will never spoil, perish, or fade. For example, in Psalm chapter 2, it says that Jesus is going to inherit the nations. You are going to inherit the nations with Jesus. Read it. It's in the book. It's in the Bible. You are going to inherit with Jesus. And the Father gives us the most precious gift that he can to both seal our sonship and guarantee our inheritance. And it's the Holy Spirit. You notice what the Father, what happens at Jesus' baptism. Jesus, in his baptism, hears a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And then it says the Holy Spirit came and rested and remained on Jesus like a dove. Even in that moment for Jesus, his sonship and his inheritance was proven by the Holy Spirit resting upon him. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying there is an inheritance on the other side of this life. And what guarantees that that is coming is that God has given you the Holy Spirit. It's a deposit that guarantees what is yet to come. S is for seated. Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. To be seated simply means to be sat in a place of authority, in a place of peace, and in a place of victory. That's what it means. It's picturing Jesus on the throne. And it's saying, you are now sat with him in heavenly places. That's who you now are. And again, this massively changes the way that we view our lives. Take, for example, the temptation to victim thinking and self-pity. If we change our stinking thinking from thinking like a victim to a victor, it actually transforms all our circumstances. I'll give you just one example. You've heard me perhaps tell this story before that on our last family holiday, within five minutes, Carol fell down the first step and broke her arm in two places. And it rather overshadowed our holiday somewhat. And I, I remember in the, in the hospital, kind of being rushed there by ambulance, sitting there, not knowing any Spanish, being in a strange place. And for Carol, it was like a hundred times worse. She was in excruciating pain. And there was this one moment where they wheeled her off to a different place to get an x-ray. And she was literally all on her own, surrounded by people that she never met before. And she said, in that moment, I started to feel self-pity knock at the door of my brain. How many of you have had that? How many of you had that just this week? Self-pity, knocking at the door of your brain. Let me in, let me in. What you do at that point is absolutely critical. And Carol said she just made a decision to start thanking God. And she just started with the very immediate. She's like, Lord, thank you for health insurance. (laughs) Thank you for medical science. (laughs) Thank you that my arm is going to get better. (laughs) 
Thank you that I'm being well looked after. Thank you for the ambulance that God is here. Thank you that it happened here and not somewhere else. She just began to thank God for her immediate circumstances. And it just began to lead on to other things. God, thank you that I am yours. Thank you that I am safe. Thank you that you're my protector. Thank you that you're my provider right now. And then that effortlessly just began to lead into intercession for people around her. Just in her own breath, she began praying, God, we just bless people in this hospital. Let them know your peace. Let the peace of God fill this place. Suddenly, with one choice, you go from potentially thinking like a victim to thinking like a victor who knows they're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Whose perspective are you looking from? Because I tell you, you are not made to look from earth to heaven. You are made to look from heaven to earth. That's who you now are. If you are thinking from earth to heaven, that is old you. That's not who you are anymore. You're called to think like Jesus from a place of authority, victory, and peace. And then lastly, T is for temple of the Spirit in Christ. Paul says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. God no longer shows up in special places. He shows up in special people. And there's one sitting on your seat right now. He shows up in special people. God doesn't turn up in temples of stone. He turns up in temples of flesh. You are now a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. This is utterly, utterly remarkable and miraculous. I mean, just think, for example, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Once a year, because that was the resting place of God's Spirit. And once a year, he could go in and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And tradition has it that that was such a fearsome experience that a belt, a, a kind of a rope would be tied around his waist and it would trail all the way through the temple outside so that if the high priest was struck dead in the presence of God, they could pull his lifeless body out of the temple. You just have to read the story of Uzziah, who was just standing next to the Ark of the Covenant as it's making its way into the city of God. The oxen stumble, the The covenant starts to shift and he puts his hand out to stop the Ark of the Covenant and he dies instantaneously because the sinful came in contact with the sinless. This makes this statement all the more remarkable. Where is God pleased to unpack his suitcase and stay and dwell? Your life. (laughs) If ever there was proof of how clean you really are on the inside, it's this. The Holy Spirit lives in you. (laughs) that wouldn't be possible if God hadn't already eradicated your sinful nature. You are a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. That is an awesome and fearsome thing. Wherever you go, he goes with you. You are a carrier of his presence. Wow. Perhaps the band could come back real quick and we're just going to land here. And Do you know, there are I've added a fourth thing since the first service. So there are four things. The fourth one's not up here. But there are numbers of things that we can practically do to shift our thinking in line with who we now are. Firstly, start with revelation. What does God actually say? Get to grips with the word of God. I went through a season where I memorized most of Ephesians chapter 1. Why? Because I really wanted to get this stuff into my brain. And I wanted to get the revelation from the word of God. So find out what God says about you. Secondly, repetition. Just repeat the truth yourself in songs, 
in verse, in declarations. Look yourself in the mirror and say, morning, Phil, you are chosen by Jesus. Just look yourself in the eye and repeat the truth back to yourself. Repetition. You know, it's said that it only takes 66 days to change a habit. In other words, in a month and a half, if every single day you start to declare these truths over yourself, it will change you. I promise you, it will change you because the Word of God always produces fruit. Repetition. Repeat it. Repeat it. Train your mind and your body will follow. Thirdly, repentance. Live it out. Put off the old ways. And then fourthly, reproduce, which simply means pass these things on to other people. I think sometimes people have this attitude of, no one is discipling me. And that is the wrong place to start, my friend. The place to start is, what have I got to give away to others? That is the first question to ask. And a a friend came to me a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't seen him for years, but I used to disciple him as a teenager. And I haven't seen him for probably decades. I spoke at his wedding and, you know, very, very dear family. And he came up to me and we just had an incredibly kind of emotional kind of reunion. And then he said something to me that really struck me. And I'd forgotten that I used to say to him. He said, Phil, he said, when you discipled me, he says, you always used to teach me that it's not about the second person. It's always about the third person. It's not that you've received something good from someone else. But the question is, who am I going to give this away to? And he said, I want you to know I've not forgotten that. I'm going to give this away. Everything you gave to me, I'm going to pass on to a third person. I'm going to keep your legacy going. I'm going to be a disciple maker. I just want to encourage you with these tools. This is not just for your own benefit. This is to give away. Train your family. Train your children. Train those in your sphere of influence. Use these tools. Let's stand together and we're going to finish.